Last week, in our study of Ecclesiastes, talked about the frustration of death. And Ecclesiastes, one of the things I love about it, it's a very realistic book. It doesn't sugarcoat life after the fall. But it also doesn't just check out and fall into absolute despair, which in a lot of ways is one of those, can be one of those things, a strategy we use to try to get through the frustration of life is just to shut our hearts off to the good because we feel like if we enjoy anything, it'll just set us up for disappointment. So some people try to kind of take a preemptive strike and, and just call everything bad and not let their hearts enjoy anything. And Ecclesiastes won't let us go there either. All through the book, it talks about God as a giver of good gifts, even after the fall. Now that, you know, if you wonder where is grace in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all through it um, in the fact that we have a book of Ecclesiastes, that we have a God who is a giver of good gifts in spite of the fact that mankind has misused the good gifts and continues to misuse the good gifts that God gives. Adam and Eve were put into a beautiful garden, given the opportunity to to have perfect fellowship with God, to walk with Him in the cool of the day. What a wonderful description. And yet, they decided that they would not be bound by the way He told them they needed to use His creation. They said, we will not be limited We will do what we want, when we want. We will eat what we want, what looks good to the eye. And things fell apart. And Ecclesiastes describes what life is like when mankind, or after mankind, has sinned against God. Life is frustrating. Death has come into the world and it seeps into everything. And yet, in spite of that, there are still moments of real joy. Yet, here's one of the great temptations is to live for the joy, live for the pleasure as a way of kind of checking out or even getting above or beyond the frustration. In other words, at one point, the book of Ecclesiastes talks about how mankind went in search of many schemes, but still could not straighten what is crooked. What's crooked? Life is crooked. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Everything is broken, as that great songwriter Bob Dylan said. Everything is broken. And there are lots of things that people will try to pour themselves into to somehow pretend, if you will, or live in this sort of fantasy world that the fall and that the brokenness and that the frustration doesn't exist. And and one of those ways or sort of a whole area we're going to talk about tonight is the pursuit of pleasure. So we're going to read in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 1 through 11 about the pursuit of pleasure. But I want you to notice Solomon, when he talks about this, he's not writing about how he became a backslidden pleasure, you know, monger, drunkard, whoring after, you know, all these different pleasures. He's not describing that. He really continues to emphasize through this little section that I kept my wisdom with me. he's, He's actually taking a much more serious investigation. Is there anything worthwhile pouring your heart into in this world that will somehow get you past the pain and the frustration? That's what he's talking about. He's offering us, in other words, 
wisdom for how to live in a fallen world. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, start at verse 1. I thought in my heart, he says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Or as I argued um, two weeks ago, the word meaningless should be translated generally frustrating. That proved to be frustrating. It didn't work. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was a reward of all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless or frustrating. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that we would come to have wisdom to understand the place of pleasure in our lives and in your kingdom. We pray that you'd help us use this word even tonight, even the foolishness of preaching, to teach us about your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You notice how three times in this section he mentions my wisdom staying with me. And why is that? Because as soon as he talks about pursuing pleasure, and when he talks about pursuing folly, if he talks about amassing great wealth, these are all things that generally people don't associate with the pursuit of wisdom. It seems that he wants to say, listen, I know that these are the kinds of things that are usually associated with not pursuing wisdom, but I really was making a serious investigation here. I did not turn my back on God and just pursue pleasure. This is not a book. This is not sort of a testimony of somebody saying, yeah, for a while I quit believing in God and I just poured myself into pleasure, but it didn't really work. And now I've come back to God. Now, what he's saying is, as a believer in God, I wanted to really explore. Can doing good things, enjoyable things, pouring yourself into the kinds of things that mankind says are worth doing and enjoyable, can that really help overcome the frustration that attends everything in this life. Is there a way? Could this possibly be a way out of the dilemma of the frustration? And what he says, of course, is no. But let's examine this a little more. Um, let's talk about, sort of break down a little more detail what he's talking about that he pursued. Because I find that we do these sorts of things ourselves. I think there's a lot of parallels here. A lot of things that you would say, well, what should you do? How then shall we live? 
A lot of the things that he says seem like reasonable candidates for the kinds of things we should pour our heart into. And again, he's not saying in opposition to God, but he's just saying along with being a believer in God, seeking to understand wisdom, are these good things to be about? What does Solomon say? Well, the first thing he talks about is laughter in verse 2. But he says laughter is foolish. Laughter. I think the kind of laughter he's talking about is the kind of laughter that's foolish. In the Bible, in the Proverbs, it says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So it's interesting that he describes laughter as foolish. I think that that gives us a clue as to the kind of laughter he's talking about. He's not just talking about humor. He's talking about laughter that is an escape from reality. And I think um, sort of this over kind of skepticism, the idea that you just laugh in the face of the frustration and the meaninglessness. And what he ultimately says is it doesn't work. What is this? This is the kind of thing that everything is a big joke. Um, But of course, you know, while we love to to have our jokes and our humor and we love to be entertained, the fact is old jokes grow stale. I don't know. Do you ever watch old Saturday Night Live reruns? It's fascinating to me because I grew up in the era, the classic era Well, of one of several classic eras, I guess, of Saturday Night Live. But I mean the real classic era with like Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi and Steve Martin and all those guys hosting Saturday Night Live. And yet, you know, even when you go back to those, that classic era that just made Saturday Night Live what it was, that put it on the map. Yeah, it's just not that funny anymore. I used to listen all the time to comedy records when I was a little kid. After my grandfather died, I inherited all of these comedy records, Bob Newhart records and Smothers Brothers and all these Bill Cosby records. And I had one of those great record players where you could put five records on top of each other, which is why they're all scratched to death now. But you could put five records on top of each other and it would drop them one. It would play it and then it would drop the next one down and play it. And, and every night before I go to bed, I would just listen to those comedy records. I don't know why. But you know, they're not very funny anymore. Newhart's still funny. <laughs> Smothers Brothers are still funny. Yeah. But not as funny as they used to be, Right. <laughs> The, the, the proverb says this in verse 14, chapter 14, verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. As much laughter as we can have in our life, and even though laughter can be a good thing, it still can't erase the pain. Can somebody close that door? That would be so helpful. Um, I love laughter, but here's the point. It's a terrible idol. It won't get you to a point where the pain and the and the sorrow and the frustration can't keep breaking through. As a matter of fact, it can't straighten what is crooked, right? Neither can wine. Now, this is interesting because, you know, in a sort of a Christian gathering like this, you'd, of course, expect the preacher to say, wine is bad. But, of course, the Bible doesn't say that, and so I'm not going to say that. As a matter of fact, in the Psalms, 104, Psalm 104, verse 15, it says that wine can make a sad heart glad. And yet what he says here, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, and it still didn't work. In other words, wine can be a wonderful gift of God. It can even bring a certain amount of gladness, but pursued as a way to get beyond or to escape the frustration of life, it will always backfire. It will always break down. It can't do it. Um, if you use wine or alcohol or any drugs like that uh, to, to, mask, to mask our empty souls, 
it's really rightly described as a chasing after the wind. And it's interesting, you know, what we know about alcohol, the way it works is by dulling your sense of reality. I mean, in some ways, it's, it's really like a false gospel, except it's just, the, it's just the opposite. The gospel makes you feel better by telling you the truth. Alcohol, of course, makes you feel better for a while by sort of helping you not think about the truth, in a sense, or to be disconnected from reality. Of course, it doesn't really work. And what does he describe here? He talks about it as a chasing after the wind. I thought about the old Bud Dry commercial, and I thought, how revealing this commercial was. Don't ask why. I mean, in some ways, isn't that why people drink? Don't ask why. Just have a Bud Dry. Right. And then in reality, that's in so so many ways what he's talking about, trying to cheer our heart with wine, trying to get past or overcome the frustration of life by using something that keeps you from caring about the questions and the answers anymore. But it doesn't work. It won't work. It ultimately won't work. How about pursuing pleasure? He talks about this at the end of verse two. But of course, you know, and, and again, the advertisers love to hold these kinds of slogans up to us. I think the advertisers would not know what to do if we actually got a real taste of what we're really longing for. They wouldn't be able to sell us anything anymore. But, you know, this one captures this idea. Life is short, play hard. As it's been said in our culture, people play at their work and they work at their play. It's really interesting. And yet still, we're a generation and a culture that is so depressed It's not working, is it? I love this quote from Lorne Michaels, back to Saturday Night Live. The creator of Saturday Night Live said one time, intellectuals get uncomfortable with the idea of fun. It's sort of a uniquely American thing to trust fun. It got invented in California, I think. And that makes serious people uncomfortable. There's something in it I trust. Uh, It reminds me of a quote from Woody Allen one time. He was asked what he believed in. And he said, I believe in the power of distraction. And I think we all do, but it just doesn't work for long. Eventually things break through the distraction, don't they? Uh, how about the embrace of folly? What, is, what can that mean, the embrace of folly? It's the idea about just basically like pursuing foolishness, which can be sort of a relief. It can be a place of rest, but to live in that is really to check out of reality and refuse to to be responsible and to take life as it is and to deal with it. Woody Allen puts it this way. If there is no God and everything is an illusion, then I definitely overpaid for my carpet. <laughs> right? I mean, there, there it is. If, if there is no God and life is an illusion, what's Woody Allen's answer? I definitely overpaid for my carpet. It's like th- the best thing to do in the face of that kind of nihilism is just to try to laugh at it. Um, there was a book written a few years ago called Shows About Nothing examining Seinfeld. And I thought it was really a fascinating idea about the gospel of Seinfeld. Do you know what the gospel of Seinfeld is? Now, I'm not cracking on Seinfeld. I think it's a wonderfully funny show and very poignant at times. But the deep sort of underlying message of the show seems to, seems to be what this guy is talking about, I think. He says that, that really Seinfeld pushes what's called the gospel of ironic detachment. In other words, if you think about the show, there's always some kind of situation that comes in and frustrates life. It's very much a show about Ecclesiastes. They they always have different schemes to try to overcome the frustration. And it's always sort of the most random kinds of things that happen. Right. It's it's very much about Ecclesiastes. Random things happen that frustrate just ordinary life at every turn. 
And always George and Elaine get incredibly frustrated. But Jerry is able to always rise above it. He's the comedian. He can just look at everything and not take it, any of it very seriously, at least by the end of the show, and just sort of laugh his way through it. And in a lot of ways, that's a strategy that appeals to a lot of us. Don't think about life too much. Just sort of try not to get, take it too seriously. Lighten up. And of course, there's some wisdom in that at one level, right? Because there, there can be sort of a, an idol of trying to figure, things every, figure everything out. That's another scheme that Ecclesiastes talks about, the pursuit of knowledge. And so sometimes, you know, I'm not saying become morbidly introspective, because that can be a strategy. If we can just really figure out what's, how things are working or what's going on in my heart, then I can kind of, you know, get to a point where, you know, life won't be so frustrating. No, that doesn't work either. But folly in all its forms is a poor is a poor way to live. It doesn't work as a scheme. It doesn't work as a scheme. In other words, so, so many of the, the shows and the comics that, that I watch, while they distract for a while and they even bring a little joy for a season, the underlying message always seems to be, if you, if you take anything seriously, you're just going to get hurt. Don't take it too seriously, or you're just setting yourself up to get hurt. So he, he looks at all these various kinds of pleasure and he can, determines that it doesn't really work. So then he tries some of the pleasures of the rich and the powerful. Again, while keeping his wisdom. And he mentions this. You look at verse 4. He talks about undertaking great projects, building houses for himself, planting vineyards, gardens and parks. In other words, this, this is what we might in our culture say is more meaningful kinds of leisure. He's not just you know, going to comedy clubs and he's not just... you know going to bars and drinking all the time and just wasting all his time. No, he's doing the kinds of things that people would look at and say, this is the good thing for a king to do. He's building parks. He's building palaces. He's devoting himself to to the kinds of things that seem to be meaningful. He tries to find life in being a great builder who undertakes wonderful projects in gardening and farming. He tries to find life in aesthetic pleasure, in art. There's a hint of that when he talks about gathering women and men singers. He's put together a great choir. Enjoyable, right? Uh, Not only that, he tries to find pleasure in his harem. Well, we know what that's about. And for some people, they think that's enough, right? Like Vic from Spinal Tap. Do you know Vic? Everybody knows Nigel and David St. Hubbins. Vic is the keyboardist, Vic Savage. And one of my favorite lines in the movie... He says, as long as there's sex and drugs, I could live without rock and roll. <laughs> at the end of the movie, it's like, what? You know, he's, he's getting interviewed at the very end of the movie. You remember that? And, and they say, well, what would you do like, if you didn't have rock and roll and if the, the band you know, didn't exist anymore? And he thought about it for me. He goes, well, as long as there's sex and drugs, I could still live without rock and roll. Right? But Solomon finds that that doesn't bring meaning either. Then he, he pursues fame, and he says that he accomplished it. See, here's the thing. We all pursue these sorts of things, and we don't really get them, and we sort of say to ourselves, well, I just haven't tried it thoroughly enough. If I really had this, surely it would work. The reason it doesn't work is I haven't been able to get enough of it, or I haven't been able to get it consistently. No, he had all of this stuff. He says he didn't hold back from anything. He didn't deny himself any pleasure that he could get but it didn't work. How about fame? 
he achieved great fame. Verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. He didn't lose sight of God, and yet he achieved great fame. But maybe fame isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Um, I, I put a quote on there by David Geffen you might find interesting. I find it kind of interesting and humorous. But I wanted to, I wanted to tell you this, this quote from, or a story about Alexander the Great and this philosopher, Diogenes. Diogenes was examining a pile of bones, and Alexander the Great walks over to him and says, what are you doing? And Diogenes says, I'm searching for the bones of your father, but I can't distinguish them from the bones of his slaves. Ultimately, what does fame bring you? Remember, death still comes to the famous. So listen to his conclusion in verse 11. When I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What an image. Chasing after the wind. Can you ever get it? No. You can try your whole life and you'll never accomplish it. Nothing was gained under the sun. Under the sun, you remember, doesn't mean apart from God. It means life on this world after the fall. Nothing was gained. He's not able to overcome the frustration. So, the first question is, do we really believe him? Do we really believe him? Are we willing to take his words and believe them? Do we really believe that these are the words of the wise? That none of these things, none of these things will work? I don't know. Uh, like I said, Woody Allen said one time that I believe in the power of distraction. And I look at my own life, and I look at the lives of people I know, and I think there's a lot of people that still believe in the power of distraction more than they believe Solomon's conclusion. At least the way we live our lives, it seems that way, right? How then shall we live? What wisdom does the Bible give us? And here's where, again, I want to remind you of something I said the first week about Ecclesiastes. It's fascinating how often the book of Ecclesiastes talks about the good gifts that God gives us in the midst of the frustration. But one of the things that Ecclesiastes says that's very important to see is that the ability to enjoy the good gifts is also a gift of God. In other words, it's not enough to have it all. What Solomon says is you also have to have the gift of God to be able to enjoy it. Where does that come from? Look at what he says here in chapter 5. I put it on your outline. He says, Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun, that means in this world, during the few days of life God has given him. For this is his lot. This is what we're to be about. Moreover, When God gives any man wealth and possessions, and notice this, and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot, and to be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. Seems like what Paul says later in one of his letters, godliness with contentment is of great gain. Uh, A little later in Ecclesiastes, um, or actually earlier in Ecclesiastes, we get this. Uh, again, emphasized, any joy or satisfaction that we have is a gift from God. 
A man can do, this is in chapter 2, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. It's a gift from the hand of God to find satisfaction. For without him, without God, who can eat or find enjoyment? Do we believe that? That apart from God, we can't find real enjoyment. In other words, what Ecclesiastes says is the main reason for taking joy in life is that it comes as a gift from the hand of God. And that's a good gift from a good God. And we should accept them that way. You see, all of these good gifts are signposts that point us not only to our God, but to the goodness of what he's, been, what he's bringing. Do you realize that one of the ways that Solomon functions to foreshadow Jesus who is to come is that he is the one who more than any other person who ever lived models and lives out the idea that the coming kingdom of God is going to be filled with good things. Solomon models for us the idea that King Jesus is one whose kingdom will be rich and splendid and full of the good stuff. Right? David gets a hint of it, but in Solomon you see the fullest expression of the idea that the coming king the coming king will be greater than King David. Under, under man, apart from Jesus, king, da- king Solomon is the greatest king, the most wealthy king, the king who has all of these pleasures. And in some ways, we don't just look at that and say, ah, well, he was obviously a pagan. He didn't really love God or he wouldn't have had all that rich, rich man stuff. No, the Bible never says that. He does get tripped up by some of his riches and certainly by the foreign wives and by his harem. But the point is, one of the things that we're to learn from Solomon's life is that God is fabulously wealthy. And the coming kingdom, what he has planned for his children, Solomon's kingdom can't even begin to compare with it. Right? In other words, God does not tell us that the wisdom you are, the way you're to live, is to basically say pleasure is bad, And all of those kinds of physical things that Solomon enjoyed, well, really true Christians would never enjoy those sorts of things. No, absolutely not. The Bible says we are going to enjoy those things because Jesus, his kingdom will so far surpass the kingdom of Solomon. At the end of the book of Revelation, it says the kings of all the earth will bring their splendor to King Jesus and all of it will be there in the heavenly city. And we'll be part of that because the Bible says that we are all co-heirs with Jesus if we're his children, if we put our faith in him. So we can't look at pleasure and say this is a bad thing. And if we really love Jesus, we wouldn't care about it because what Jesus has in store for us is pleasure that this can't even begin to compare to. Right. So while it may seem like a religious idea and there are a lot of religions in the world and a lot of sort of sort of uh, counterfeit versions of Christianity that want to tell you that the way to be religious and holy is to not have any pleasure and certainly not to long for anything that would be pleasurable. The Bible says absolutely not. The Bible can't even begin to describe how good things are going to be one day. Physical, real things. But while these gifts that we get now are signposts that begin to give us a hint of what's coming when you enjoy a good beer it's a signpost of something even better but it's also a good beer (laughs) it's also a good gift now 
Or in my case, because I don't really like beer, but I love chocolate. Right? And I don't know what the chocolate in the new heavens and the new earth is going to taste like, but it's going to be great. But you know what? The chocolate that I eat now, I, I found some really good chocolate here. Yeah. And it would, be, it, would be more, it would be platonic. It would be not Christian, but platonic to say, well, this isn't really good chocolate. It's just supposed to help me think about heavenly chocolate that I'll have someday. No, it's good chocolate. And it's good, and it's a good gift from a good God. And it's not more spiritual to deny that. As a matter of fact, Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 says it's a doctrine of demons to teach people to abstain from certain foods and from marriage, which God created to be received with thanksgiving. And Paul goes on to say, tell Timothy, if you point this out to the brothers, you will be a good minister of the gospel. Part of the gospel means extolling the goodness of the creation. Why? Because to do less is to slander our God. When Christians and religious people go around and say that this world is not good, they slander our God who made it good and said, this is a good place. Now, it's, it's frustrated, but the creation is not evil. It's frustrated, and that's a very important distinction. It can't be all that it was meant to be because the crown of creation, mankind, is not what he and she should be. And that spills over into the creation. It's frustrated. But that frustration will come to an end one day. That's part of the glorious hope that the gospel brings. Romans 8 says that the whole creation is groaning until it achieves the liberation, the liberty, the freedom that we ourselves will enjoy one day as adopted sons and daughters of God. Okay? The good gifts that we receive right now, we should receive them with thanksgiving as good gifts because our God is a good God who gives good gifts, right? So it's wrong, it's wrong to deny ourselves these good gifts or to try to pretend that they're really bad and that we don't need them. God gives good gifts. But it's also wrong, and this Paul brings this out so well, and so does Ecclesiastes, it's also wrong to take them in a way that separates the giver from the good gifts. And see, this is what's so important. Humility is absolutely vital if you would actually enjoy the good gifts. And the way humility comes is by being thankful to the one who gives them. You know, a lot of times we think, well, all these pleasurable things, you mentioned beer in your sermon. What did, what do you ta- why did you do that? People, don't you know that people make an idol out of beer? Yeah, some of you do. Okay, I know that. But I'm not going to lie and tell you that it's a bad thing. No, we make idols out of good things like sex and work, meaningful work and money. Good things. We make idols out of them. And when that happens, it's because we've disconnected them from God. We've looked to them themselves to give us everything we need, rather than saying God is the one who gives us what we need and more than what we need. He doesn't just give us bread and water. He gives us rich, abundant food. He doesn't just give us the bare, meager rations that we need. He gives us good gifts. He doesn't just give good gifts to Christians even. The Bible says he gives good gifts even to people that don't know him. Unless you think that that is sort of this crazy idea, I can prove it. It says so in Acts 14. Paul tells non-Christian people in Lystra that God has given them joy in their hearts 
that he's caused it to rain on them and has given them cultivated crops, right? So the Bible says that God gives good gifts to his children. He even gives good gifts to people who aren't his children, at least not yet, because God wants everybody to know that he is a good giver of gifts. Because isn't that the thing that you find so difficult to believe? Isn't that the thing that makes you want to put all of your hope in these good things? Is to think that I better hold on to it with everything I've got because I don't really trust God to give me another one. Or I better earn it myself. And if God doesn't give me something that I think is good enough for all the good work I've done, well, then I'm going to be pretty ticked off. See, here's what's key. For you actually to receive these things as good gifts, it's absolutely vital that you receive the righteousness of Christ first. Of course, the greatest gift that God gives is to give us his son and to give us himself. It's a wonderful passage in, um, in Psalm 16 where it talks about how we are his inheritance, right? All of his people are his inheritance. But then Paul takes that image and turns it around the book of Ephesians and says that God himself is our inheritance, It's a mind-blowing idea. And we get everything in him. But what's fascinating about this, God being our inheritance, is that you can't really enjoy any of the good gifts God gives you unless you first receive the best gift of all, the righteousness of Jesus. Why is that? It's this. If you think that you have to earn all the good things you think you need, If you think you have to earn it by buttering up God or by living in a way that he'll be so pleased with you that he'll just pour blessings into your life, if you think that, then you'll always be going back and forth between feelings of inferiority and superiority. In other words, you'll you'll feel like you deserve more than you're getting. Because sometimes, sometimes you feel like, well, I'm earning... I'm doing such good work and God is just not paying me nearly enough. In other words, if you don't first accept the righteousness of Christ, you'll feel like you have to earn blessings. And if you feel that, sometimes you actually will be so crazy that you feel like you've done enough to earn blessings. And then you'll look at what God's brought into your life and you'll say, how dare he bring this? Or how dare he not give me this? Look at what I've done. That's when you're feeling superior. You can't receive any good thing in your life as a gift. You see it all as a wage, and either it's more than you deserved, but often you feel that it's less than you deserved, and you're mad at God. But it works the other way, too. If you don't receive the righteousness of Christ, then you're not able able to actually even deal with yourself. In other words, sometimes you'll be mad at God because you feel like you've earned more than he's giving you. But often, if you feel that you have to earn good stuff and you're not getting it, who will you be mad at? Yourself. So you go back and forth between either being mad at God because he's not giving you enough, or you'll be mad at yourself because you're not earning enough. And thus, you can't enjoy anything that comes into your life. It's either not enough, it's always not enough, (laughs) Because you don't receive it with humility. The only way you can receive it with humility is to receive the righteousness of Christ first. So that therefore you say, whatever I get, I have because of sheer grace. I didn't deserve any of this. Everything I have is by grace. Therefore, how can I possibly complain? He's given me, I deserve death and hell. But I got this? Thank you. 
In other words, unless you accept the righteousness of Christ, unless you put your hope in the good giver of gifts and the greatest gift of all, even the good gifts that he gives to us in this life, we can't receive them. And we can't receive joy from them because we're trying to suck life out of them. They're not designed to give us life. And they can't give us life. They are supposed to give us joy. But they can only give us joy if they're, if they're connected to the great joy from the great giver of gifts and the ultimate gift of Jesus. Does that make sense? It's worth pondering and thinking about whether you've connected Jesus and thankfulness for him with the other gifts that you either feel you need or have gotten even. Thankfulness is always the antidote to idolatry. And it has to start with thankfulness for what Jesus has done. Or you'll never be thankful for anything else. You'll either feel that God didn't pay you enough or you didn't earn enough. It's only the righteousness of Christ given to you as a free gift that helps you realize that while I don't deserve anything, I actually have become a co-heir with Christ. Everything that Jesus deserves, he shares with us. Wow. <laughs> and it's the good stuff, gang. It's the good stuff. C.S. Lewis says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And it's our own righteousness that gets in the way. Our own righteousness gets in the way of us enjoying the good gifts of God and trusting him as the giver of all that we need. Um, let's pray together.